this is Auteur Detour, wherein three film lovers travel through the filmographies of cinema's most important directors in hopes of finding a greater understanding on the other side. Hello, and welcome to Auteur Detour. This is Travis, and I'm here with Ian. Hi. And Chris. I'm Ian. Hello. Don't mess this up, guys. This is our, <laughs> this this is is our final episode. episode on the <laughs> filmography of Alfonso Cuaron uh, for now. Um, we might have to reconvene if he uh, does anything else, maybe like six years from now. But uh, mm-hmm. we're going to be discussing his most recent film, 2018's Roma. Roma tells the story of a native Mexican housekeeper named Cleo who works and lives as a maid in the home of an upper middle class family in Mexico City in 1970, 1971, uh, something like that. Her life is defined largely by the work she does, which includes taking care of the family's four children. Tensions in the household mount when the family's patriarch takes an extended leave under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Around the same time, Cleo becomes pregnant by a young martial artist who then abandons her. The story largely concerns uh, the life uh, of the family, as seen by Cleo. I should say the story in quotation marks, the story uh, such as it is. Uh, they go to the movies, they go shopping, they take a trip to visit family, Cleo tries to find her estranged lover, Cleo witnesses the brutal repression of student protesters by CIA-sponsored paramilitary groups. Throughout, the unblinking camera moves perpendicular to the actors, taking in the, uh, again, quote-unquote, action of the household like a silent visitor, capturing a plethora of environmental details in stunning black-and-white digital vid- visuals, moving like the ocean waves to the gentle rhythms of everyday life. If Itu Mama Tambien was the freewheeling experimental student film Cuaron never made, Roma is his stately, self-assured, and stunningly gorgeous entry into the annals of world cinema history. If that movie felt, the earlier film felt like the first Cuaron movie, this feels like the ultimate achievement of his personal vision. I liked it. What do you guys <laughs> think? <laughs> Ian? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's undeniable, right? <laughs> it's like, it's just incredibly personal and masterful work. Like, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it. It's, it's, it's hard to, I mean, even sum up in a one sentence review right now because it's just so masterful. <laughs> one sentence. I love this movie <laughs> so much. You guys. Oh, good. Good. We're all in agreement. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, you say, cool. Good podcast. Podcast over. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, it's funny because you say that it's, um, it's undeniable, but I actually just read, um, you know, it was kind of like before we watched the movie, I was trying to, I'd only seen it once before and I was trying to kind of refresh my memory of kind of my impressions of it. And I stumbled upon a little review that was like pretty negative and it, it sort of, um, criticized. Who was it? (laughs) <laughs> Let's get him! Uh, it, it sort of criticized, I guess, like the uh, the opacity of the world and the way that it doesn't fully engage with um, the politics that are going on around Cleo, and even like barely gives her uh, as like a character sort of like a recognizable personality. I mean, you get glimpses of it, but it's really not again like a traditional Hollywood film of like. Oh, here's her moment where she like explains anything yeah, about that's herself. Why that's a terrible review? Because that's, <laughs> that's what it's doing, and that's what that's what its brilliance is. You know, in in my mind, it's like 
I was thinking about watching her performance in this movie about what you said during our Children of Men episode, which is like a character that doesn't almost say anything. You know? Yes, yes. And then like can still sort of carry you through the movie so powerfully. Mm-hmm. And like what an example of that she she gives in this. It's, like, you know, it's 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 such an understated performance, but like she's just I mean, I'm with her the whole time. Yes, you know? Absolutely. So, I absolutely. And the clarity of the camera work and how much it moves from one place to another allows you to see everything. And among all the things that you see, our eyes almost naturally gravitate toward her no matter what she's doing, even if she's not in the center of the movie. And I think that's actually a really powerful statement about her presence in this film. I was initially, I watched this movie and I was like, I had no idea what it was. I, all I knew was a newer Alfonso Cuaron film, watched it on Netflix, and I was like, that was good. And then I just left it alone. And then revisited it and really watched it. And my God, uh, just again, the, the the detail of the camera work is impressive, but there's so much going on. I think someone described it as chaotic, but that's only because we have so much to see. He doesn't force you to look at any one thing in particular, but your your eye naturally gravitates toward that which is uh, most compelling. And in this case, it's the performance by Yalitza Aparicio, who plays Cleo. Um, I think he does that in a couple of ways. One, she's often facing the camera in certain scenes in which no one else is. Some people are looking at her or people are looking on in the background, kind of forces our eye toward her. But uh, again, just her presence alone, like I seriously cried and I never cry in a movie when uh-huh. she gives birth. Yeah. Really, I, I like I couldn't. I, I had to let it go. You know, um, it's yeah. such an let understated performance where she's not like overdoing anything, and she's not underdoing it. It's like she just feels like everything is an appropriate response, and that's really uh, amazing to get from someone who's never acted in a movie before. Absolutely, she was awesome. Um, I was thinking mm-hmm. about it in terms of in terms of like the opacity of the like kind of world that she's in, like. A, the movie does follow her around so much, like that you're, I feel like it's limiting the view of what's going on by her viewpoint. You know, like other Alfonso Cuaron characters, um, her life is being shaped by forces that she's not fully aware of, like not fully cognizant of. And that's not really a criticism of her as a person or a character. Like, that's just like yeah. where her life has found her. And then also, I really, watching this movie, I really felt, I mean, We've talked about Alfonso Cuaron has said like the camera is like a, his camera is like a ghost like visiting these places, but it feels so powerful and like kind of magical in this movie where you really feel like you've been dropped in this place and you're not watching the movie like um, it you know it's obviously not like Hollywood like close ups and like you know a shot reverse shot and stuff like that but you really feel like the action is like bypassing you and it makes you like yeah. lean forward and try to like figure out what's going on. Can and I say no before and it keep going? yeah what's up <laughs> just because we keep talking about this camera work and how he implements it into the story in a way like that was the most powerful thing to me in this movie also because I hope this isn't like an incredibly trite thing to say that like Uh-oh. people have said about shitty movies or something like that because it felt so powerful to me when I thought it like in the watching of this movie is that <laughs> wait I can the stop that in the, the watching of this movie no. <laughs> I'm talking over myself but uh no you know just I just mean like while I was watching it it felt really powerful in that moment and then later I was like I hope this isn't like saying like New York is a character in this what movie. you got you know what, what you mean? got every movement of the camera felt like a brushstroke 
by a painter. You know what I mean? Like it was going back and forth and it felt like brushstrokes. I felt like I was watching him literally paint a picture on the screen for us with his camera. And the way that like the camera would start at one side of the room, pan to the other side of the room sort of slowly and then pan back to the other side of the room slowly. And it was like, it was the opposite of the fly in the wall thing while still being the fly on the wall thing yes. of the Utsumama Tambien. Like right. it still was doing that, but it felt more like not like a passive observer, but like a director of it. You know what I mean? Like totally. almost like he was like the slowness, I guess is the only way to say it, of the way that the camera would move past them was just like, I want you to like look at every frame that I'm showing you right now. I want you to see this. It felt like he was just like, don't, don't skip past the bookshelf. Like this bookshelf is important. You know, like it felt like that the whole time. I don't know. That was, that was the most like compelling thing to me as this movie began was just like, holy shit, I'm in the hands of somebody right now. <laughs> like, I don't know. I was really thinking a lot about children of men when I was watching this movie in a number of different ways. And there's a lot of similarities and a lot of absolute stark opposites um specifically with respect to the camera so you know when we have movies like children of men which is really immersive it's got this handheld camera that follows is reacting this movie isn't reacting it's literally setting the pace for everything so i think of this instead of like a ghost where a ghost kind of follows one around this is almost like the god camera that knows what's going to happen when it's going to happen before it happens and everything is just happening uh, in accordance to the camera movement, right? So um, this is the most confident, like, assured, m- one of the most, uh, like, here, I'm a director. This is what a real movie looks like. <laughs> this is what happens when someone totally owns their craft, you know? Um, and it's absolutely beautiful. I don't know how many takes some of these things took, but uh, the final product is just incredible. Like, where do you even begin with some of these shots? I love that God camera. That's really funny. And I mean, I kind of, I see what you mean, Ian, like when the camera moves, every centimeter that it moves, 20 new bits of visual information are Mm -hmm. kind of um, given. And it's, and it's so deliberate, right? Every time he moves it that, yeah, you feel like he's feeding you like this, like, you know, I I wrote like you're drinking in all these visuals, like constantly, you know what I mean? While you're watching the movie. And um, yeah, I think that's, Right on. I am but I, I do feel like it, well, I was going to say, like, you know, when I was talking about the, the ghost camera and being, being um, sort of placed into this world, it was reminding me really powerfully of something. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then I came up with, I think it's, you know, there's no slow motion in this movie. But yeah, the camera is like, it feels like slow motion because the camera right. is moving so slowly. The lugubrious motion of the camera itself is like the slow motion is what I wrote. But it, it feels like when you're watching a time travel movie and someone's been placed in back in time and they're watching like the main action, but from like a removed perspective. And I was like, where have I seen that before? Oh yeah. The prisoner of Azkaban. It feels like the camera is a little (laughs) bit like when the kids travel back in time, watching the movie from like a third person perspective. And I was like, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And what I was going to say before about kind of the politics of the movie, it sort of makes sense to me that like no one is really able to fully engage with the politics because like having that discussion or even showing that happening almost gives one like the hope that something could like change, you know, but I think because like this is like the past, this is like history, it's already happened. You know, you're just kind of watching these things kind of again, like tum- like dominoes falling in slow motion and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So in that way, I think it's like uh, sort of makes sense that the politics are not something that's like, what's the problem here? Let's fix it, guys. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's not that story. It's just kind of like wa- observing it from a distance is it all kind of crumbles or, or, you know, sometimes at a distance. 
literally from a distance because there's zero close-ups in this movie, really, right? I mean, almost everything is <laughs> far right. away. Basically, basically. Well, yeah, except for one time when, like, the again, the action of, like, history kind of, like, gets <laughs> right. uncomfortably close. But. but part of that, to me, felt also like a conscious choice to not do, like, the Hollywood-centric thing of explaining foreign history to U.S. audiences, you know? Like, I sure. feel like a big part of him sort of... I mean, obviously, you're 100% right. Like, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, like, he has to censor Cleo in that struggle and what she is going through and how much she knows and all that stuff. But um, but a big part of it also is just, like, there's no exposition on purpose. And I think a part of that, you know, if you're from Mexico, then you may or may not, but probably do know something about, you know, the Corpus Christi Massacre. And you, and, like... If you're not, then like look it up. <laughs> you know, he's like, this isn't this isn't for you guys. Like that's what he was kind of saying to and, me a little bit. And that's so Quaron too, because we've heard in multiple interviews in the past, he hates when movies have to over explain stuff. He hates needless exposition and things like that. And this was a really great opportunity for him to absolutely flex those muscles, right? Uh like, I don't need any, exp- I don't even need any sound in this movie, you know, or uh, music, yep. right? Sort of like Children of Men yep. in that way. Um, yeah. uh, and that's how your your memories would be anyway. You were literally, like, stepping into a memory of his from a sort of a distance. Like, he doesn't need a dialogue or an overarching narrative for his own memories. Uh, and neither do we, because this movie speaks for itself. Yeah, I also, that's a good, that's a good point, because it also leads to the other most important thing about this movie to me, is just that it feels so much more personal than anything he's done before. Like, I mean, that's obvious almost because it is like a autobiographical story in a lot of ways, but like, it feels like even him doing those kind of shots around Cleo and kind of thing, like it's like, he's taking such care with it because it is his own sort of memory that he's trying to articulate or something like that, you know? Yeah. Speaking I mean, of personal, Oh, go ahead. No. No, real quick. I, I made that comment in the Itu Mama Tambien episode, I think, where uh, he really has this affinity for, for the women in his life, and the maids specifically. Like, when Tenoch has his uh, his maid comes over, there's a scene later, too, when they're driving on the road, and there's, like, a it, the camera lingers on some women, essentially, that look like, like they're doing work in the, in the fields, and they're just kind of talking amongst each other. And uh, I also didn't realize until after doing a little research that the maid in... Itu Mama Tambien, who was Tenoch's maid, is his actual maid, who Cleo was based on. The lady actually makes her appearance, and uh, so it it all kind of comes full circle, I think. I was just going to say, in terms of, like, his personal vision... I was... I started the movie last night, and I was like, holy shit, this is his most green movie ever. And then I... I had to adjust the color on my TV, and I was like, oh, never mind. He he went with the standard black and white. That's cool, too. Um... Just kidding, but uh, yeah, I was going to say, there's this film critic, uh, Andre Bazan, have you guys heard of him? He was like, uh, did a bunch of film theory back in the back in the old days, and um, he talked about, as opposed to like Eisenstein, who thought like the art of cinema was really about um, like editing, his whole thing was like, you know, what what the film camera can do is capture time, basically. His word for it was... Um, embalming time was his phrase. So it was mm. like this, and I, and I really just like felt so strongly when I was watching this, that that's what he was kind of doing. Like just capturing these big chunks of time. And, um, Chris, this kind of goes back to what you were saying, but like allowing the viewer to like creating a democratic image where it's not like you're forcing people to look in a specific direction, but really you're filling the, sh- the frame, the mise en scene with like 
these deep focus images where it's the viewer's choice over a long take to say, I want to look at what's happening in the foreground. I want to look at what's happening in the background. And I, again, I think Alfonso Cuaron's films like exemplify that like more than maybe any others I've seen. Speci and they were big. He was a big champion, Bazan of Orson Welles. And I guess when Orson Welles filmed Magnificent Ambersons, he set out to do like a ton of scenes that were like basically just lateral movements of the camera uh, to the characters. And then when the studio got like bad. Um, viewer feedback like in their like test with their test audiences they went in and recut it and added close-ups but that wasn't part of like his original kind of vision for the movie and uh i don't know i kept thinking about that as i was watching this it's tragic to me that i didn't see this in the theater because it had this netflix release you know i mean it did play neither of you guys saw it in the theater yep i did travis you of did course, oh, of course of course alfonso Cuaron. i'm gonna not go to the theater well, <laughs> I don't remember it playing around here. I mean, I can't imagine it did. That's so I, I have, can I tell you a funny story? So I went into the theater and there was no sound at the beginning of the movie. And I was like, okay. And then like the water started washing so up funny. and there's still no sound. And I was like, you know, I was at the Alamo draft house. So there were um, people like, you know, ushers or servers like in the aisles. And I was like, no sound has happened. Is that a problem? <laughs> and they were like, I've seen it before. This is what happened. Oh a God. couple more minutes go, and they're like, oh, shit, we messed up. It's just coincidentally this movie has no audio for the first, like, minute oh or, God. like, this most subtle, subtle audio that builds up. But they didn't notice that it wasn't happening, and so we just we had to rewatch the first, like, six minutes. Uh, I don't know if that, like, <laughs> added to all, like, the, the our interest in the story well, later or the tension, but uh, it was, an it was like, sort of, like, any two mamatan bien where we thought something was wrong with the audio? Like, yeah, this was yeah, the real yeah. version of that. It actually happened. I had so. my own experience almost exactly like that, but not, which was that when I put it on Netflix when it first came out, like the opening night of streaming, I watched 10 minutes of it being like, this is a really fucking bold choice for him to make a Spanish language movie without subtitles. <laughs> subtitles. The subtitles didn't come on on my Netflix for some reason. And I'm like following it and being like, they have to start telling me like what they're saying because I don't know. And then like fucking, I ended up, it never came on. They ended up having to turn on like closed captioning or whatever. And, like, then you hear, like, birds chirping comes up on the screen. You know, like, that kind of God thing. God damn it, is, yeah. And I was like, this fucking sucks. But that was the first time I watched it, obviously. But, like, but I, I watched ten minutes of the movie being like, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on right now. But, <laughs> but hey, it's not my fault. <laughs> no, it was this Netflix uh, release. It was a play by Netflix. Coron, like, hates that it didn't get a big screen, you know rollout i think obviously it was filmed with like not just incredible uh visual nuances but the sound of this movie was like that you know it's the best it's ever been so right? i watched never a, i watched a blu-ray and there was like a bonus feature about the post-production of the movie and they talk about what went into doing all the sound effects and stuff like that and it was staggering i mean it was like it was exhausting just to watch. And they said when they delivered the sound files to the um, the, stu the theaters, they thought there was a mistake because the files were 10 times bigger than what they usually get. Oh and uh, uh, it, it's crazy. It, just Alfonso Cuaron's just energy to like what he puts in these movies. Like, yeah. I mean, what he achieves is really like due to just like kind of what he's capable of as a human being. Like he is like an incredible person uh, just from like a stamina perspective.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it explains why he makes a movie like every five years or so. Right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> that, in the, yeah. that in the detail, like you mentioned too, uh, I saw something shortly after this Road to Roma, and uh, it shows a lot of the, you know, behind the scenes, and one of which was all of the extras that he cast weren't just, oh, all right, here's some people on the street, let's get them in my movie. He's literally got a photo, like looks like a mugshot, basically, of, of each person holding up a card, including who they are, where they're from, what they do, and their age. And the, it, there's, there's just countless people. You can see this whole spread, and he chooses them based on, like, are they white Mexican? Are they, like, a Mixteco? Are they, uh, how old are they? What in this? And he goes through this exhaustive list of hand-selecting every extra that's in his movie, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how long that process alone took let alone the again the sound and the the you know the staging and the blocking and the lighting and everything that went into all of that especially when you're talking about making a black and white movie i mean that's uh it looks a certain way as far as the lighting and everything i don't know the man is a beast he's a <laughs> it's beast. impressive and, and like the thing about the extras and stuff like that i i heard that um he said something that like as the camera pans you know through these scenes Every person in the in the background gets a line, basically, like a, a tiny, maybe like almost inaudible bit of dialogue. But that every line they say has meaning within the story, and that's just oh, like again, just an incredible amount of information, an incredible amount of work uh, and craftsmanship. And speaking of craftsmanship, like I really liked the script in this movie. Like we've talked about, oh, like some too. of Cor- Coron's yeah. writing being like one of the like kind of maybe weaker elements in some of these movies, but like I had literally no problem with anything that happened in this movie. I mean, it was just so on point. Yeah. The so script was focused. perfect yeah. to me too. I mean, cause it wasn't, it was just so tight too, you know, like the fact right. that he's telling a non story basically. <laughs> and, but he's like, he, everything that's there is there for a reason. You know what Every I mean? time it's Cleo like, moves, like it's like, to me, it was like watching, you know, the camera's movement and her movement are so kind of um, controlled. And I felt like, you know, when she's sitting with the family for a moment and then the uh, mom of the family is kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, could you get like my husband some tea? And she's like, OK, you know what I mean? And you just feel like everything in her life is so controlled by the forces around her because she's a maid, because she's a servant, because she has to answer to like the beck and call of like uh, this family. It, it shows how constrained you are, like, by your, you know, financial uh, obligations, by, like, you know, she lives with the family, you know, she gets, like, a tiny bit of time off. Um, but she's not allowed to turn on her light, like, the di- after yeah, the, the, time, you know? It's yeah, like, it, it, it's, like, the difficulty of her, like, life is, and, and the sort of how constrained her life is, is so shown, like, by, like, literally every, like, I guess every movement is, like, motivated and controlled. And I felt like that really um, underscored, like, Coron's kind of like vision of like the way that you're controlled by like the forces around you. But I think mm-hmm. having the story like based on a maid and like in these very kind of precarious kind of conditions and you know, the way she like has to go on that big trip to like the, the, the rich family's uh, house. And then like yeah. she gets kind of ushered to like the lower area where people are like partying, like the, um, the native Mexicans are like kind of partying and like, yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I thought um, it almost, helped you see like the ways your own life is kind of prescribed for you, like without you knowing it, you know, just like the, the omniscient narrator of Itu Mama Tambien was kind of like describing these kind of aspects of people's lives, these forces in people's lives that maybe they weren't fully aware of or kind of like turned away from the camera in this movie sort of like documents the way that your life is forced by mm-hmm. again, these for, like the God camera, right? Like kind of like dragging her along or pulling her along these kind of, past that um she didn't fully choose for herself and it made me think like yeah of my own life and also like 
imagining how people's lives get forced into things that they would maybe never imagine for themselves. Like I was thinking of, uh, the, you know, Theo from children of men and also, uh, you know, immigrants in Mexico who travel from there to here, like because of like their circumstances. I just realized Theo and Cleo choose it. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, but I was going to say also the mom, you know, the mom, the matriarch of this family has the same thing. Like she doesn't choose her path either. You know what I mean? Like, and Mm. one of the things that's so, that the script of this movie does so well, it gives you empathy for her who has this like, uh, or it gave me empathy for her. Travis, I could see you. The first time I watched this, I had zero (laughs) empathy for her. I hated her so much. Last last night, a little bit more, a little bit more. She, I mean, the fact that like, it's a feminist movie Chris, you mentioned that earlier, and it's obvious. You know, if there's... Quoron's obviously such a political guy, and if there's a political, or I should say a socially political uh, message in this movie, it's feminist message, you know? Like, it, I mean, there's there's other ones, too. There's the ones like you're talking about, about, like, the the way that the underclass is struggling, for sure, that's there, too. But But I think that, like, the way that he shows sort of feminist energy, not feminist as in feminism, but feminine and energy, I should say, as powerful. And like as the two different sides of it, whether you're Cleo, what does it, do you guys, either of you remember the name of the mom? Sophia. Calling her the mom. Yeah. Sophia. So whether you're Cleo who keeps having to soldier on like through these sort of hardships and without any agency over your own life, basically. Mm-hmm. Or whether you're Sophia, who has this sort of harsh strictness about her, but, like, when shit hits the fan, she gets it together and also soldiers on. And it's just like, nope, I'm getting a job now. This is what I have to do. Like, she still has, like... I'm using terms like soldier, which are, like, masculine-toned words. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, like he doesn't show them as masculine. That's what I'm trying to say is that like, he's showing that like not all feminist movies have to be like, like the way the gravity is just like, Oh, it's a female astronaut. And there's a Hollywood thing of being like, you know, what if we put this woman in this man's role? kind of thing? You know what I mean? Like, like this isn't that this is showing like, this is what's powerful, powerful about women. Like, I feel like both of those characters show what is powerful about women that men don't necessarily, not men, I shouldn't use gender coded words like men and women, but that um, masculine people don't necessarily have the ability to have, you know, like, I don't know. Does that, am I making any sense or am I just kind of rambling? Well, I I feel like I see it a really different way because I feel like the, the women are linked and they're, I guess because we're looking at a history where women's roles are so prescribed that there is like, like they both share an oppress an oppression on them, like in right. their in their shitty uh, lives. The men are also kind of like afforded some freedom that the women don't have. Um, well, yeah, when, like even like even the poor leaves. the husband like chooses to leave. That's you know what I mean. He does like the and then Furman kind of chooses to just kind of bail yeah, too. Yeah. Like it feels like they have a freedom that like the the women really don't. And um they do. Yeah. And yeah. then also there's no what not just because it's the 70s but also because this could happen now. Like 
we like to think that like when the doctor husband leaves that the wife can like fight for half the money or whatever, but like that's not even an option it's just like oh he left so now we have to scr- like get by on our own you know like I, I, yeah i don't mean to say like this is like long, you know ancient history and that it doesn't apply today but i guess what i'm trying to say is like it's it's a look at a specific time in a specific place how the roles of like women and how the roles of like your role within like a class structure also works because it, it does show like again like the path that like Furman takes and like the kind of like weird lifestyle that he's kind of like ushered into right by society and then like you know I to me it was as much about class as it is about like gender roles in society and I think the fact that you know she's a woman is important but also the fact that she uh is a servant from like a lower class working in an upper class you know, she lives right on the tension between those two kind of like I think th- I think that you're right. I mean, it's definitely about class as a movie. Like that's what the movie is about. I'm just talking about like he has this Quaron has this way of adding a layer of politics onto things that are not necessarily what the movie is about. Like he he has a, ma- a way of making these choices where he's like, okay, this is a movie about you know, like a woman who has no privilege and has no um, you know, like I said, agency over her own life and then like how she reacts to the world around her and how she takes care of the people around her and all that kind of stuff. And then like, that's not enough. Like he also has this thing where he's like, well, in the same way that children of men, he made a choice to be like, I'm going to show London the way that it really is with like black people everywhere you know what I mean it's like that's not like what the movie is about but he made a choice to be like no I'm not gonna show an all white London <laughs> you know what I mean like that's like another it's just another level that he's working on in this way I feel like Roma he's also being like well this that's what the movie is about but like I also want to show you like these women like are fucking pulling it through. Like they, they are the ones who are fucking working. The men are like checked out or like causing this shit. You know what I mean? Like, okay, go ahead. Chris. No, hundred percent. And to your point about the feminine, he does a really great job of understating the power of the feminine. And in a lot of ways, especially Cleo, who many might regard as, Oh, she's the underling. She's the maid, you know, but obviously aside from the part where she saves the children literally from the water, but a simple, one of the, Basically, the only really funny part in an otherwise not particularly funny movie is the training sequence where the, uh, I guess his name's Professor Zovek. He's kind of this odd looking. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You didn't g- laugh at the dick dangle? That was hilarious. <laughs> well, no, right. okay, but, I mean, it's not like a, a, an overtly funny movie, right? But there's, of course, that scene I where was in awe. The, the guys were training, and, uh, you know, the he's actually played by a, a Mexican luchador, a Latin lover who was also in the WWF, a uh, really funny guy. And he does this kind of sun salutation, if you will, when he stands mm-hmm. on one leg, like, no, this is very difficult. Try it. And uh, the dudes cannot do it, right? And and then you, the camera cuts over to her, and there she is. Yeah. Just the sun shining right behind her. Yeah. She does it flawlessly. Yeah. Just standing easily, uh, totally at peace, fully capable. And that's kind of her, like an understated, no no one's really looking at her, but she's doing it and she's fully capable in and of, uh, in the thing that she's doing in that moment. And uh, I don't know, that part kind of speaks to what she's capable of above and beyond these hyper-masculinized, radicalized men that are like looking to train and kick ass. She's got this sort of zen ability that's above and beyond what they're capable of. And that serves her well throughout the rest of the movie, you know? He does great ways of highlighting her subtle uh, power, if well, you will. Absolutely. 
back to the dick dangle because that's also like worthy of saying in the same way of that like i feel like the fact that he films the sex scene in that way you know where like the sex scene in this movie is such an anti-sex scene like it's literally this fucking ripped dude jumping around doing martial arts with his dick flopping around and she's just kind of like sitting there watching you know the way that we were sitting there watching trying not to laugh and exactly and um and i think that like him framing it that way felt like a feminist act in a weird way too because like it is like it would feel weird to sort of suddenly position her as a um object you know what i mean like he has to be the object in that moment yeah yeah good point they call that the female gaze that's the yeah, closest exactly. I think the movie get, comes to like a direct uh, eyeline match is when she's looking at her men <laughs> and that's and that doing his like who doing his thing and that's the closest it gets to a close up I think is when Fermin goes in to kiss her and you get this mm-hmm. weird obscured shadowed um, face where he's kind of like off to the side of the frame but uh, right. but that's the kind of the closest the face ever gets to the camera I think well that and um, immediately after she gives birth and there's a kind of a closer shot where the background's actually blurred of her just kind of gazing in the kitchen and that's a really important yes, moment yes yes that's right oh that's a beautiful shot. Yeah, you're totally right. I was going to say, you know, bringing up her kind of like incredible solidity and stuff like that, her kind of Zen mastery. That's another um, criticism of this film I remember hearing when it came out is just that that she was painted like as like kind of a in this kind of like inhuman, like saintly way. Like she's just this ever kind of suffering, silent um, native woman. And it was kind of like fetishizing or infantilizing. I didn't feel that way, and I felt like, you know, she does literally what she needs to do to survive. And Chris, you brought up really early on the the Quaron kind of theme of, like, people forced kind of to just survive, like, through, like, extraordinary circumstances. And literally with her, her just kind of, like, chill going through her daily life, like, that's what she's doing. Do you know what I mean? That, like, just trying to find little moments of peace and little moments of, like, relaxation. Like, that's just what she has to do to, like, get through the day. And that is a form of, like, survival and heroicism. And I don't think it's saintly at all. I think it's just, but it is very uh, easy to kind of empathize with, you know, and, yeah. and to kind of, like, admire. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I think when I, I first watched it, I did in that moment when she does the Zen, like you said, just the kind of joke moment in that. I don't know that it's necessarily a joke, but it is kind of played like that. Um, it did hit me that way of like, I don't know, a little bit of what you're talking about, of like the fetishes, fetishizing of sort of um, this woman, you know? But then I did, uh, even in the, my first watch, sort of go back and read it more as like, this is how Zen and like powerful she is, but also asking us the question, like, or forcing us to ask ourselves the question, imagine what she could be if she wasn't in this yes, situation. Yes. You know, exactly. imagine what this woman could be like if she wasn't like forced. To imagine her liberated. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Great point. And like, um, you know, another thing is like, okay, they don't fully possibly maybe engage with the politics of, you know, why the students are protesting, et cetera, et cetera. But like the fact that, we see this extremely, um, yeah, prescribed, like, striated class system and these roles that these people are forced into juxtaposed against, like, this political turmoil that's happening at the same time. I mean, we see the structures and we see the threats to the structures. And I think you can, 
you know, I, I, like you said, it's like really easy to read into that. Like something should change. We want something to change. And in this movie, it's not going to change. Um, you know, we, we haven't talked about like the opening shot much, like of the looking yeah. down at the ground where the water washes yeah. over the ground and you see this reflection of like the sky mm-hmm. and, um, I really like on yeah. this watching like thought that was, was like the most powerful image. I wrote 100%. my first note here is opens with water at once it's a tile floor being cleaned by a servant in an ocean and earth worthy of gravity's awe. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like it's like it's both things all at once where it's like showing this sort of life of a servant, you yes. know? Yeah. And then it's also showing like the magnitude of like the water is waves, you know? The right. water is like and the sound of that, you know, it's, what's his name? Skip Levesay? Is that the, the sound guy's name? I don't know. He's also the Cohen sound guy. Like, nice. he did all mm. the, Co- or most of the Cohen Brothers movies, and uh, just to tie it full, full circle for the last two seasons. And I think he got the Oscar for this movie. Anyway, the, the sound of the water splashing in that first shot is the most powerful sound in the movie to me. Like, that just opening, like rush of water is like sewing all involving <laughs> you know it's like uh, and let's not yeah, forget too that they uh both begin and end with the image of an airplane kind of in the distance one being reflected in the in the water in the beginning and of course at the very end the camera pans up and one of the last things we see is the the airplane in the distance and i think that's really interesting because it's sort of reminding us that there is an, a bigger world out there but it's only from a distance we're only given this little view uh this isn't this entirely self-contained world and we often hear the airplanes kind of throughout because it's it's apparently right over an airport or something because mexico city's you know big city and whatnot but you can actually hear the airplanes in multiple instances throughout the movie too to your point about the, yeah. the sound and the consistency i think there. you know i think the ocean is like an incredibly powerful like um symbol for alfonso Cuarón, and i think flight and planes are very powerful mm-hmm. too for him and when you see the plane at the beginning, like the sky at the beginning, it's like, it's like a phantom. You know what I mean? It's like an illusion. It's like this hint of like, like, you know, I don't know, in this like reflection, you're seeing like hope or possibility, you know what I mean? But it's just like illusory. It's just like ephemeral. You go through this movie, you watch all this horrible stuff happen. You watch like kind of a, a very, a threat to the status quo, right? Happening and maybe some change happening. But it's already happened. It's in the past. There's no kind of like going in and like changing it in any way. But at the end of the movie, yeah, you through the kind of like the rooftops of like where she's living and through like the buildings that are there, you see you see the actual sky. And I think it's pointing to like, you know, the only hope for change is like in the future it comes after this story, kind of what's going to happen. And you see like a, an airplane flying. And I think that's kind of what it's saying. Like you go from like yeah. being stuck well, on the ground to, to like the children of men and make it a weird way. It's very similar. Know? Yeah. And and I thought of that, you know, obviously, while well, I was watching it, too. I was thinking, you know... In the, in the watching of this movie. The- <laughs> <laughs> we, I really, watching this movie this time, I was really struck by, like, how Itumama Tambien, Children of Men, and this function as, like, a trilogy. And I, I, mm-hmm. I think of it now like the, like the, the history trilogy. Like, you know, because, like, politics is history, right? Human history is mm-hmm. politics. And, like, um, this is, like, the movie of, like, the past. Itumama Tambien is, like, the present, you know, where there's this, these things happening around you, even if you're not conscious of them. And then Children of Men shows kind of, like, the inevitable future that this is all kind of leading towards. And I think yeah, that cool. cameras do similar stuff in these movies, even though they're, like, technically, like, the style of them is very different. But, uh, yeah, I really feel like these are, like, his three kind of, like, linked films. 
I want to get not too much further, unless you have something on that, Chris, but I want to get not too much further without talking about some of the moments in this movie that were really incredible to me. Like, we haven't really talked a lot about the plot moments. The introduction of the dad is one of the most iconic introductions in film history to me. Like, that car pulling into the fucking garage is... It's Fellini, like, filmmaking to me. It's just so... I mean, it's it's clearly Fellini. Like, it's it's taking so much from that. But it is, like, the only, the one word that I could come up with for, like, what that character is before you see his face is imposing, right? Like, he's just, like, this figure in their life that, like, like they don't know, like, you know, even though he never shows himself to be angry or violent, really, or anything like that, but, like, you get the feeling that none of them really... He's unknowable to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, as he pulls in and pulls out and it's so slow and deliberate, those shots where it's just like close up on the fucking headlight for eight seconds. <laughs> and as it's pulling close, backs up, you know, it's like, I just fucking thought that that was such a powerful shot. And it was that moment where you're like, like you said, Chris, where you're just like, oh, I'm in the hands of a master now. Like there's no... There's no way around it. Like, he's just fucking got me in the grips. He was, like, kind of, like, a magical figure for the pe- for the family, mm-hmm. but he's also, like, kind of ridiculous, too, at the same time. Like, even in that, yeah. even in that introduction, it's like, oh, this cool. is his Definitely. little world, like, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in this viewing, he really actually reminded me of um, the uh, Luisa's husband. You know, he's, like, this professorial guy yeah. who's, like, all serious yeah, yeah. and full of himself. Because, uh, you know, he's the... It, it's as much, like he's a myth of his own making too. Right. And in his like family's eyes, but like when you see him out in the world, he's just kind of a ridiculous guy. And, uh, and yeah. This- and he's even the pilot in, uh, Silicon to Pereja, you know, he's yeah, like, I think yeah. he takes a lot probably from his own dad who that's what I was thinking. Watching this is just like, I feel like I'm watching a, like Alfonso Coronel like try to sum up his childhood memories of his dad mm-hmm. and he's doing it flawlessly. Yeah. And then like looking back, you can look at so many of the male characters in his movies and be like, oh, that's where he learned it from. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. from his dad, you know? Yeah, maybe, like, yeah. And maybe I'm adding this on to him, because who knows? He's a fucking filmmaker. Like, But it does feel so personal in that moment of, like, how do you paint a picture of your dad? And, like, he chose to do it by having, like, the car squeaking into the fucking tight driveway. Like, it's, I don't know. It was really, really cool. Also, the dogs I wanted to get to... Because the dogs are so, like, that's a Quaron thing, obviously, and they are more present in this movie, not just visually, but, like, you never aren't hearing the sound of dogs barking, you know? Like, he just loves, I don't know, I love the way you film his dogs. They're even yeah. present when the dogs themselves aren't present. Like, that driveway I mean. is like, not always... Even, not just visually, but... Yeah, because that driveway's always got dog shit on it. There's not one moment in any scene when we see that, there's not at least a piece of dog poop uh, in that driveway. I, I made sure to you know tally that up this time (laughs) (laughs) the ever poopy driveway i mean i I wrote a bunch of notes about different moments of the movies like the long pan over the kid's room where you have all these incredible details of like all their toys and stuff like that and it's you know Mm -hmm. at some point it kind of hit me when i was watching that shot like this kid probably has more possessions than louis uh than cleo does you know Um, oh yeah so it's like again every shot like has like you know like you were saying ian I, i kind of like was resisting what you were saying because like saying like he's adding on like oh feminism to this when I, I really feel like in his movies like 
they're all interconnected. And so like, you know what I mean? It's, it's more than just any like one thing plus another thing. It's really like this whole world where he's, I don't know, like there's so many forces happening. Also the kid, when he talks about his like past life, um, he says he was a pilot in his past life. And then later he says he was like a, a sailor, but, um, yeah, yeah. but I thought that was interesting. Kids really I say weird kids, stuff like that. Like about do. how they were like used to yeah, <laughs> their previous life. Um, I thought the kids, especially the sort of Alfonso Cordon surrogate kid, like, or at least that's how I took it, uh, were incredible in this movie. I mean, we've talked a lot about yeah. his child actors and how so often they can feel stilted and sort of um, other, you know, just of a movie, I guess I would say. This feels so naturalistic and like every every part of it, you know, that that sort of a re- initial scene of them when um, not the first one, but when the, he lies down on the on his back and says, I'm dead. And she lies down next to him. It's just like, I like yeah. being dead. <laughs> it's quiet or whatever, you know, yeah. like that's like it's you feel the closeness and you feel the realistic sort of bond that they would have, you know, and yes. like, I don't know. It's, it's really good. Well, at the same time, kind oh, of, uh, I was just going to say real quickly at the same time, kind of highlighting how little she really gets to rest, you know, like, wow, this yes. is an amazing opportunity to actually not do work for once, yeah, yeah. you know, and be present Absolutely. with you guys. A thousand percent. You know, I also feel like one of, I'm going to kind of get to this in my kind of final thoughts for Quorum, but like, one of the, you know, Chris, you mentioned in, you made a great point in the Children of Men episode about there's not really a villain in the movie, right? It's literally just mm-hmm. these oppressive structures that we've built up as a society that, like, you have to fight against. And and the the, the struggle is just breaking out of that status quo. Um, and, you know, there's this thing called the death drive, which is, like, one of Freud's, like, theories of, like, humanity. And it's, like... Because at first he was like, yeah, everything's driven by sex. And then he's like, but wait, why does this keep happening? Why does this thing keep happening? And he had this idea that, like, there's part of you that, like, wants to die and wants to, like, put yourself in danger and wants to kill yourself. And, like, weirdly, like, the systems that we've set up that are, like, we can see that they're leading to us all dying. And there's part of our brain, like, subconsciously that's telling us, like, but that's easier than, like, changing it. And so we just kind of go along with our daily lives. And I think that is, like, this, like maybe the central struggle of, like, the uh, the Alfonso Cuaron protagonist, at least in some of, like, that's, at least yeah, in his later movies. And, yeah. and uh, I think, yeah, I think uh, Cleo, again, doesn't have to, like, battle, like, you know, on, like, yeah, the yeah. story doesn't make her actually have to fight for things that in that same way as like a lot of the characters, but I think that's um, her just surviving is like, and like witnessing these things is her journey. I don't know. But yeah, there is that like death drive that she's like battling. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I agree. Have you guys seen any Bela Tarr movies? The Hungarian guy. That moment where the guy is singing at the fire reminded me of, uh, of Bela Tarr. He's like, he did, um, workmeister harmonies. He did, um, he does these like long, long four hours movies. They're, they're really amazing. Yeah. Anyway, it's just like, he's one of these, like, again, giants of like world cinema and Alfa- where as Alfonso Cuaron doesn't kind of, I feel like always get that same respect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've loved watching these movies with you guys. It's been so fun. Me too. 100%. Yeah. I mean, there's more, I want to talk about this movie, but I also, you know, I, I I'm almost ready to get it to our sort of final Cuaron thoughts. Like what do you guys have to say about this movie more? I love that they go to see basically the gravity of 1970. 
Oh yeah, um, around. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I yeah. I almost even thought it was George Clooney for a split second. I'm like, he kind of <laughs> closes up on the guy. I'm like, is this Clooney? No, never mind. <laughs> right. But um, I would say one last thing is. Uh, as I've mentioned many a time, due to my, my hearing, of course, I'm very, I respond to visuals. And this movie is quite literally the embodiment of the saying, every frame a painting. Uh, I, could, I, I didn't watch it all the way through, just in one take, exactly. I, I had to come back to it a couple different times. And every single time I did, I'm drawn in immediately. There's no point, I'm like, uh, all right. Just the way he frames it, this, the camera, the clarity, um, the choice to shoot on digital, of course, where you can see every tiny detail without an ounce of grain or anything to it. Um, it's just, for someone like me who's big on visuals, it's just uh, unparalleled. I'm just so glad that he made this movie and was able to finally yeah. create this movie, um, especially one that's so personal to him. Because, you know, we've talked about directors that have to put in their work in order to finally make the movie they really ultimately wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And this is yeah. clearly that. He made, you know, two huge hits, you know, before that, or at least one massive, massive yeah, hit one. in Gravity, <laughs> you know, and Rome, of course, yeah. became a hit. And uh, just really quickly to that point, I, well, <laughs> unlike you guys, I don't do a lot of research around the movie when it comes out. I just watch it completely blind as possible and then leave it be and like let it you know marinate in my own head so i had no idea when i finished this movie i was like did anyone see this i'd never heard anyone talk about it i don't watch the academy awards i'm like i hope this movie like got some kind of recognition because god yeah, damn it, it this did. is amazing it did it totally did and i'm so glad because this is one of those movies that feels like it could get totally overlooked in the mainstream sort of hollywood academy award oriented sort of uh, atmosphere given to like some biopic about you know some person that's super played famous by some British asshole oh I yeah, know exactly right. what you mean <laughs> totally yes exactly played by Colin Firth uh, <laughs> yeah um, right, so I'm just so glad, again, now knowing what I know, that this movie was so well received and got all the uh, accolades that it deserved it's just a yeah. hell, of a, hell of a feat so the shots look like historical photos, like, you know what I mean? Um, they do. He, yeah. and, and I guess he talked a lot about his, I guess he started in terms of like his visual art as a f- still photographer um, early, early on. And he talked about that in some of the like interviews that he did, I guess, around the movie, at least in the little bonus features I watched last night. He kept talking about his uh, history as a photographer. And um, yeah, I mean, when it ends on that dead student, right, and the woman kind of wailing over him. Yeah. And, uh, again, the, the camera just, like, never cuts. It just holds for so long. And you feel like you're, like, again, like, dropped into these historical moments where a photo was taken and then watching it kind of play out, like, almost uncomfortably long. And, uh, like, I thought the exact same thing, Chris. I just thought it was so beautiful. And just, like, every shot was just, like, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's beautiful, and then there's these scenes like the labor scene when she, you know, gives birth to this stillborn baby, and it's like, that's not beautiful. That's fucking. I mean, it is beautiful, you know, but it's like so intense. When, like, when sorry, the earthquake, just, you know, totally. When the earthquake happens, yeah, uh, in the like uh, baby ward. I don't know what you call it, but uh, like maternity ward. That's yeah. like oh, Mister Fancy. <laughs> this is the guy who made gravity. He could like freak me out at any moment. <laughs> know. You know what I mean? Like right. I, you kind of get shaken a little bit cause you know how far he could take it. Like how far is he going to take it? Like this, you know, there's some real shit that happens in this movie. And, uh, that shot of the rubble on the baby incubator is like so yeah. disturbing and kind of like, 
you know, foreshadows a lot of what's going to happen. And, so, and then a hard cut to like these crosses on the side of the road. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's, yeah, that, that sequence is, is harsh. I mean, yeah. it's also more of what she's been dealing with the whole time of just like feeling like she has no agency about what's happening. Right. You know totally. I mean? like, totally. It's just right. like the way that they are she's talking like, looks to around her and the way like, that, oh. yeah, she's like, doesn't know what's going on. They aren't telling her what's going on. And like, you know, she's basically like just a passenger through that birth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it's it's brutal to watch. You know, because you know that it's how fucking it happens. You know, like right. Yeah. And we say how you know it wasn't beautiful, but it, it, the birth scene actually is absolutely beautiful in the uh, intimacy <laughs> of that. You don't see too often in movies the actual birth experience from the, the woman's yeah. perspective. It's usually the aftermath. You see the baby born and that's that, or you don't focus on the woman's experience because this is a, an absolutely life-changing event. Anyone who's been present for a birth, I wish, I, you know, uh, I, anyone who's been present for a birth understands the gravity of that situation regardless of whatever that outcome was. In her case, it was a tragic one, but the fact that he chose to focus so much on her and uh, her experience of it, your eyes never leave Cleo for a moment, and the power of that moment is so special. Uh, Again, it could have been treated in any number of ways, and most other filmmakers would probably not do it that way, but it's so important and so beautiful to be there and absolutely sitting through this experience with her, and that's it's it's critical and it's a beautiful decision by Quaron. I I love that. Again, I cried and, gonna, and I never cry in a movie. <laughs> You're yeah. crying right now, Chris. Like <laughs> you can see it. You're crying. But, like oh, and I'm even crying. though the 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 health the the healthcare system seems like relatively decent and like the people that she interacts with at the hospital are really decent, you do feel like a little like alienation from like the bureaucracy of it, and you feel like this should be better. This should be easier for her. And you know she only gets into the hospital right because, or like this good place because of the uh, the kindness of the mother of the family, like just mm-hmm. her kind of gesture. Yeah. And I have more to say about that, but did you want to say something, Ian? No, I mean, I, nothing. That Sorry, I, I thought you were going to say something. I was just going to say, like, um, in Itu Mama Tambien, similar to this movie, there's, like, a trip to the beach at the end that is under unique circumstances. In Itu Mama Tambien, it's Louisa's imminent death. And in this, it's because she had this, like, stillbirth that the mom of the family, like, uh, right. grants her permission to join them on this family vacation. And then the movie ends with her kind of like, uh, or like the penultimate scene or whatever is her rescuing these kids. And these kind of like in this moment, like all the social structures are kind of fall apart or fall away. And there's this moment where they're just all hugging as a family. And, and so, you know, I, I was reminded of like, Itumama Tambien, like the three of them coming together in this like kind of beautiful mm-hmm. moment. And just like Itumama Tambien, um, like you can see the structures kind of reforming once they go back to the city and it's so heartbreaking. And like the kid is just like, Oh yeah. Could you get my thing? And it's just like, uh, like, you know, and it's just, uh, it's, uh, and then she, I think the last line of the movie is something like, you know, she's like, Oh, tell me all about it. And she's like, I'll tell you later. And like you, again, you feel like all we have is this story to take with Mm -hmm. us. And like, what are we going to do with it? And then like the shot of the sky. Oh, incredible. Yeah, mm. but I, I did. I really feel like there's a. But you're a strong right. Link I mean, there, it yeah. is. It is that. That is absolutely linked. I mean, that moment when they are, they do feel like a family all of a sudden. You yes. Know? <laughs> when they are, when they after she saves them, and then like you said, they go back to to real life, and the yeah. is still there. Yes. Like it's, you can't escape it. Yeah. 
it's, it's fucking brutal. And but that's why if you watch beautiful. it in a row with Children of Men and you watch Children of Men last, like there is that like hopeful like with a boat at the end. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah, like well, that's the closest. That's almost the closest it gets to a happy ending. Like in one of these movies. But also like Children of Men, I mean, they mention that that Cleo can't swim, right? Right. And that like it is there is a moment, and this is I don't know. What do you guys think about this? Like. She is doing that thing of like sacrificing herself for the life of a child. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. she 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 does survive it. And, yeah. You know, Theo doesn't. Right. But Cleo is like is like, oh, like that child is drowning. I'm going into the fucking water to save yeah. it. <laughs> you know, like uh, despite the fact that I can't swim. Like there's no it's that thing we talked about a lot in Children of Men of just like when you're, you know, sort of ready to pick up that to answer the call, to use Ghostbusters terms, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> when you're ready to like to like live up to your to your um, highest potential or whatever you want to call your it, humanity, know, yeah, your, your humanity. Yeah, your humanity. Then, like, all of a sudden, life is less important in a weird way. Yes. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, she uh, loves these kids, and she says like she multiple does, times, yeah. like, "I love these kids." Like, uh. So yeah, and they love her. Point. You're right, right? They and they say do. multiple absolutely. times, "We love you." Absolutely. I have another note here. Can I read you this? Yeah. There's so early. There's a movie. Have you guys seen the movie Vivre Sa Vie by Jean Luc Godard? Uh, it's awesome. It's um, it's black and white. It's um, it's well. There's a line early on in the movie where um, they're talking about like a side character who died or they're talking about maybe someone you've never seen and they're like, oh, this guy died. It was some political thing. And it's just sort of dropped early on in a conversation. The movie is about a woman who chooses to become a prostitute to support herself. And in like, you know, a capitalist patriarchal society. Uh, and in the end, spoiler alert, she gets killed when like her pimp is trying to like make, like trade her for something and like, you know, make a deal where he basically, like, like he's going to traffic her. Like, you know, basically <laughs> right. she's getting trafficked and she gets shot and murdered. And, um, basically the idea I think is like, even if you don't concern yourself with politics, even if you have like, mm-hmm. even like, you know, just this complete peripheral view of like what, what's happening politically in the world, you're nevertheless subjected to the, its forces you know, and that line kind of haunts you at the end because it's like, yeah, it's it's a political thing, like money and all, you know, all this stuff. Right. Your your role, like your gendered role in society, like as an object in it, you know, um, as a product. And I felt an echo in this movie, like you know, Godard feels like such a strong influence on this movie, as does like Fellini, as does like De Sica. I mean, uh, but there's the line when um, Furman says to Cleo. She asks if he's like training for the Olympics or something. You know, he's like, what is this for? And he's like, uh, something like that. And I thought it was kind of like, right. you know, the Olympics are also, uh, you know, like a propaganda thing. You know what I mean? Like, just like the paramilitary group is like a way for the government to like um, operate like in a kind of clandestine way. Like the Olympics are kind of like the like the propaganda arm of the government's like mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. I think feel like he was so like good with dialogue in this movie, you know? Like, yeah, the dialogue is incredible. And did yeah. he, was he the sole the soul writer of this movie? writer, yeah, the sole credit writer. And cinematographer and... Editor. Co-editor, director. co-editor and, and director. Yeah. Like, just complete yeah. control. And God, yeah. what a what a product. Yeah, people said, you know, oh, wow, he must have learned so much from Rebesky. Obviously, he did. But, you know, it doesn't feel like... I mean, it feels just like him. You know, it doesn't feel like... Uh, he's 
copying things from Lubezki. It just feels like they obviously have this sort of language that they use together, and he's using it. You know, exactly. But it and it feels different though. You know, like there it, there is less kind of swirling, and it's less. It, it feels uh, way different. You know what I mean? There's yeah, less. Exactly. Like, That's what I mean. It's like yeah. it doesn't feel like he's like you know, just doing Lubeski behind the camera, like, oh, I could do that. Right, <laughs> you know, it's right. like, he's, he's, he's speaking his own language, but like, but it's, it's part a, of that is the language that they clearly speak yes, together. Yes, I feel like it's, it's like, if a camera had like a, um, you know, a will of its own, like he's using their camera, do you know what I mean? But he's, mm-hmm. he's using it in a different way, but it's still that same camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Should we get into <laughs> our final thoughts? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I let's mean, let's do it. Let's do it, yeah. Okay. I'll go first if you want. Or yeah, you go first. first. I'll go last. Okay. I'll just kind of read what I was wrote. I didn't write, like I said last time, I didn't write like an essay. I just sort of wrote a lot of notes. But thinking about his contemporaries and even like the Coens and Tarantinos and Wes Andersons and even Scorsese, like people that, you know, that we love, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like um, they all sort of exist in this world usually of sort of diorama filmmaking where they're see an image in their mind and then they sort of want to create it and they're pulling a lot from sort of cultural consciousness he doesn't feel like that at all to me which makes him such a singular director of his time and the thing that's the most powerful to me after watching all of his movies is that the only people that I can sort of compare him to are people like Fellini, Godard, Truffaut, you know, these people who sort of saw filmmaker in, in the 50s and, and were like, oh, film can be more. Like, like he, he's the guy who in the 2000s, and, or I should say in the 90s, was like, film can be more. Like, you guys don't have a big enough imagination. And he brought his imagination into filmmaking. And that can come up in like a technical way where he completely brings power of, or I mean these, the scope of what we can do as, or what people can do as filmmaking to a new level where he's like, you know, gravity is, it invented stuff, you know? And he did that not because he was like Robert Zemeckis wanting to be like, no, the future is um, <laughs> people in green suits with, with ping pong balls, ping pong balls everywhere. <laughs> like he did it because he was like, he was like, this is how I'm gonna make this movie. Gravity. Like I want it to feel like you're in space. Like and you know whatever it took to get there. You know I'm a musician and I have a lot of musician friends that it doesn't matter what um what instrument that they're playing. I shouldn't say I have a lot. I have a couple of people in my mind that I can think of where it's like. You could sit them down at a fucking drum set or a guitar or a tuba or a fucking whatever, and they're going to be like, I'm going to make music out of this thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what he feels like as a filmmaker. Like, it feels like he's just breathes it, was born to do it, and, like, it flows out of him in, like, a manic and beautiful way. But he has such mastery of it that, like, it doesn't even matter that he is a master of it because it is like you're watching film like incarnate when you watch one of his movies you know it's like that's why i was thinking about him as this sort of singular director now because in a world that we're living in right now where it's all fanfic movie making where it's like these guys have these big budget big budgets and they're like oh i'm gonna recreate that thing that i saw as a kid but my way you know or it's like 
even in a good way of Tarantino being like, I want to like recreate this image that I have in my head. What Coron does is I have this deeply, I'm going to speak for him right now. <laughs> I have this deeply He has an political, accent. I have, I'm not going to get an accent. Travis, you almost got me. <laughs> no, he's got this pol- deeply political, you know, drive to him. That feels punk rock in a weird way. It drives him to make these stories where, whether they're topical or not, like, um, they aren't topical in a message-driven way, which is to say that, like, all of the topics that he uses are sort of contextual to tell what his real motivation is, which is to say, like, oh, we could be better. Like, it could be, we could be living in a better world. And he uses these tools. I mean, you know, we've talked about this a lot over the podcast. And uh, not, it's, it's not something I would have guessed going into this. I know Travis had more experience with Alfonso Cuaron, but, like, watching all eight of his movies back-to-back... He can take a topical issue like immigration or AIDS or the health of the earth in like gravity the way that it shows you like how magnificent the earth is and like it gives you this feeling of wonder sort of about the earth itself. Or like it really just feels like he's just using it as a context. Those issues are important to him, but he's using it as a context to be like, oh, the world might feel impossible and difficult and like you know, a lot of work and hopeless, but like he shows, he, he uses filmmaking to like create those boundaries and then show you a brief grain of sand of like, Oh, the world could be possible and hopeful and wonderful and easy, you know? And like, it's powerful to watch that kind of thing. And it's not what any other filmmakers doing, which makes me just feel like he's such a gift like yeah. this this series was a gift to me because it made me appreciate him as a filmmaker not just because his movies are so good but like you know harry potter goes through that like that's a fucking franchise harry potter movie and he does it in that movie where he shows these characters he does it from fucking harry potter to children of men to eat mama tambien to fucking a little princess like all these things yeah. where he's just like these characters are going through it and then you get this little window into like, but it doesn't have to be this way. Like, that's what's so important to him. I don't know. I love him. Absolutely. 100%. I love the comparison of him to like, that he, you know, the, the idea that he stands like not with his contemporaries, but like with like the, you know, the gods of yesteryear. I think that's like so, yeah. so true. Yeah. Um, which is funny because he's such a contemporary filmmaker and he's such like a, you know, he, lo- you know, he, the digital effects that he's been doing since, since a little princess, you know what I mean? Like are such a part of his like thing, but, uh, but you're right. They are a part of his thing, but they do feel more like, you know, the language that he's choosing to use. Yeah. yeah, He's using everything at his disposal. He's pushing the boundaries of what's possible now, which is why he's like such a, an important person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to like talk shit about, you know, more about like Zemeckis and Cameron and Angley and these guys who sort of tinker a lot, you know, cause don't put James Cameron. Uh, that's, that's, not, <laughs> that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm here to talk about, but like having put him in that camp before we started this series, 
it's just such a different it's such a different beast like yeah. he's he he does the same thing in that he is propelling filmmaking forward but really he's tell he's propelling the idea of film forward like the idea of like what movies can be forward yeah that in that way he's like Fellini or Godard to me like totally well said yeah i man i think i mentioned a long time ago how gravity was actually my first time being conscious of him as a director like this is an alfonso cuaron movie that made me go who Mm -hmm. did this and then realized oh i have seen this guy's movies before which kind of raises this point of how unique and how different he's been able to pull off all of these different films so if we look at just the eight movies right solo con tu pareja film shot in mexico uh in mexico city kind of wacky rubal comedy to a little princess you know shot in uh, in america in english you know speaking cast a kind of fantastic to great expectations there's a dickensian kind of drier <laughs> kind of weird you know bigger we don't talk about that one. <laughs> yeah you know well you know but like more the more hollywood stars recognizable faces of course with you know robert de niro and stephen hawk and you know Gwyneth Paltrow to uh, to Mama Tambien, a very uh, to American audiences maybe totally unrecognizable cast in a totally different language to a the third Harry Potter movie you know in a sequel or as franchise it's already hugely established fantasy film to uh, this bleak dystopian Children of Men film you know with a few recognizable faces too without like that uh, the the star power that would come with Gravity which is this massive you know huge blockbuster hit filmed in outer space. Or not filmed, but taking place in outer space. <laughs> I thought it was filmed in outer like space. That, right? I'm like, how did he get the camera out there? That's amazing. Um, <laughs> to to Roma, right? Uh, this absolutely, completely personal, sweeping. Again, we haven't used the word masterpiece, thank God, because I hate that word for some. I think, but that's it's, it's the best thing I can come to to describing Roma. And so I think to what I'm saying is he has such a. A vast array of approaches to his movies in a way that a lot of others don't. I think we mentioned before we've never seen the same actor in more than one movie. We've never seen the uh, same one, actor. Once. And, no. What? Who have we seen more than once? In Children of Men and Harry Potter, the uh, girl who plays the um, Aunt Marge in Harry Potter is also the woman who's Key's sort of keeper. What? Or regular, no know? shit. Yeah. You're right. All right. You're I, right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, wow. I stand wow. corrected. I had no idea. Didn't even notice Once. that. But, the exception uh, that proves the rule. Argh. But anyway, rule, but, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but I think again that adds on to this sort of unique feel of each one of his movies stands alone and is independent of one another, which is why I think it was initially difficult for me to like to go. Oh, this is clearly an Alfonso Cuarón movie, you know, because it all totally. uh, come off as so unique and so distinctive. I think I wrote this note, uh, especially after watching Roma. He's not reinventing himself. He's like he's gaining new powers, like some sort of filmmaker, <laughs> Super Saiyan, or like an islander of some kind you know like he's amassing yeah. all of this, this this power and he can either choose to use certain abilities or like not you know and it all came together in roma and he's just absolutely flexing every one of his muscles being again the editor the cinematographer the director the writer the producer all of it and it almost raises the question what's next where do you go after this um and again so that movie was in 2018 it's been about four years or so which is i think if we look at the space between all of his movies about his average between releases so i don't know if he's got another movie in the mix um obviously i'm gonna see it i'm just curious where he goes from here unfortunately like the rest of 
the world. He's moved into TV. He's got a series coming to Apple Plus next year or something like that. So that's where his uh, energy has been working. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But uh, overall, I'm so glad we, we covered this director. And I'm absolutely so glad I got to see Roma again because it feels like the perfect cap on this amazing career. Uh, it's so rare to me to see a director's last movie. I don't, not that this is going to be the last movie he ever makes, but this absolute uh, crowning achievement on an otherwise amazing career. A, a guy who's tried a lot of different things, some successfully, others not so successfully, like Great Expectations. And even, again, Harry Potter 3 was the le- least grossing film in that franchise, ironically. Uh, but it's the best one, as we've you know, yeah. I think we can all agree. So, uh, just amazing way to cap off uh, an astounding career. I'm so stoked we got to cover him. Uh, thanks for raising this, Travis. Great call. Um, and again, I'm just so interested to see where he goes next, no matter what that might look like. Yeah, and uh, you guys mentioned, I think that it was um, that the movie was on Netflix, and it's interesting that both the directors we've covered, like ended their like careers like with doing these like really i mean i'm not this is not a negative i'm not saying this in any kind of negative way but these kind of incredibly indulgent uh movies that like netflix Mm -hmm. allowed them to make um where they got to use like all this like money actors uh digital effects um i mean i guess you were comparing it to like you know contemporary movies ian like there's a ton of digital effects in this movie. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a ton of special sure. effects in this movie. It doesn't sure. feel like it. And that's, what's like so incredible about it. Um, except for the, you know, the, the way the light comes through and the kind of sheen of the image, maybe that's like sort of a, a digital um, artifact, but like just comparing the way this movie feels to like a Marvel kind of like green screen movie. It's, it's, it's just night and day, but I think it is amazing that, you know, Netflix has like allowed people like, the Coen brothers, like Alfonso Cuaron, like Martin Scorsese to kind of do these kind of dream projects and they come out amazing. (laughs) Like they come out incredibly. Uh, I don't know if that business model is working for Netflix anymore. I don't know if we're going to see a lot of this stuff in the future, but it does feel like we're in a really unique moment where like the, the, the last masters right of film are like getting to do these projects that are like, like, yeah, just like you've both said, I think, thank God, like this movie exists. And, uh, I guess thank Netflix for that. And we but, can say the same thing about, uh, to say, you know, <laughs> no, totally. I was going to say, we can say the same thing about Jane Campion's most recent movie too, right? Power of the Dog, yeah, that's I think right. was also that's a Netflix right. film. Yeah. That's right. Oh, bizarre. Um, I haven't seen that one, so I don't know how it compares, but I mean like definitely with, uh, the Irishman, you feel like this is like this super long kind of like lumpy, strange thing that like could only exist in the streaming era where they're just like, go nuts. You know what I mean? People are going to watch it like over like a, a couple days or whatever. Like, don't even worry about it. Like, um, and again, some selves are better indulged than others. And so personally, I'm like so glad these kind of movies are being made right now. And it's, um, yeah, like I said, I don't know how long it'll last, but, uh, enjoy it while it does, I guess. Yeah. Alfonso Cuaron, he's only directed eight movies. So diverse in uh subject matter themes style but like you know and i think it is really easy for people to just say well he makes good movies i don't know if that he's a no tour like someone like you know like the coen brothers are or something like that but watching these movies kind of like especially in like succession seeing his style kind of evolve and especially kind of like find his you know voice with itumama tambien and kind of like um 
refined that over time, like these long camera takes. Like he is like a filmmaker, I think, who's really defined. He has like these incredible, powerful themes, like these motifs and stuff like that. The the visuals that you see like again and again, these, these spaces with these giant windows, the just like detritus of real life just filling every frame. Uh, the color green, just like as an accent or just like a, just a, a, like, yeah, like a, a dye that's like infused in everything over like some of these movies. Um, but I think you can really define him like by his actions and by just like the incredible like energy and stuff that he puts into this movie. And we've talked about how his heroes are these people that are just like trying to like survive life, like get to the next step and, and, and try to, um, move society forward. And I think that's such an amazing, I think that's like a perfect description of him as a filmmaker. You know, I think his, it really is like a heroic kind of filmmaking, you know, where he's like in control of everything just brings like this incredible energy and like curiosity to filmmaking that you just like don't see anymore and um is trying to like yeah take it that next step forward and 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 take uh move the art form like his characters are trying to like kind of um move humanity just like forward you know we've talked about the camera that takes in so much information in these like long choreographed shots uh the mise-en-scene that puts the protagonist like within a fully realized world but kind of like at a distance um, so that you can't do the normal kind of uh, traditional audience identification with the protagonist, that that would be like so, especially in a movie like this, would be so easy to do, right? Like, what if you were that servant? But it's like, it's not quite that at all. Um, yeah. You know, the movies are about individuals in the throes of history who have to battle, like, the death drive of society, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the repressive, stagnant status quo. Like, that is the enemy of, in these films. And yeah. uh, it's such a, a... He really... take You know, his filmmaking style and the narratives of his films, they're not, like, really traditional narratives, but they really are powerful stories, and everything is so kind of, like, intertwined, and I think he has a unique ability to kind of, like, tell a story that maybe doesn't have, like, a plot, per se, but uh, is, is so engrossing and kind of, like, tells you so much about, like, the world that you're living in. Yeah, that's basically it. I just, I think yeah. he's, like, no, one of the I best mean, to ever do it. Silicon Tupereha aside, I feel like it is, like, his mission statement in The Little Princess, you know, of what you're talking about. And then, like, his uh, conclusion in Roma in a weird way. I mean, I'm sure he'll keep no, going completely. on and telling the story in different ways, but it is that thing of just, like, like you said, the sort of detritus of society, like, uh, bearing upon the characters yes. and, like, how they fucking can will themselves to succeed throughout it, like, or right. in, in spite of it, you know? Yeah. I think that that's really, um, Absolutely. that's a really powerful statement. And I yeah. think that's what makes him relatable, too, to the point you brought up again, Travis, and I've said it before, how a lot of his films, if we look at them, are actually absent a central antagonist. It's more about yes. the, ser- the series of obstacles that the main character encounters, and that's often just regular day-to-day stuff, or just stuff that would happen anyway. Even in Gravity, you know, it's like, you know, obstacle after obstacle, especially when we yeah. look at, you know, you know, of course, obviously Roma, um, one of the most personal and clearly relatable ones, too. I mean, many people have lost a child or struggled financially or, you know, been caught up in a, in a, a series of circumstances or a war that they, they never intended to find themselves in. So I think that's largely what helps bring his films uh, grounding 
grounding kind of quality to him. We can relate to him in so many ways without the like mustache twirling, you know, evil supervillain or something at the end they have Absolutely. to be. It's life that we move we move through and there's always that sort of glimmer of hope at the end that things you know, can get better. Yeah. Can I say, speaking of that, I mean, I'm just sort of mentally trying to clock where he has a villain in any of these movies. And I was going through them in my head. And fucking Voldemort's not even in that Harry Potter. Like, that's no. the only <laughs> Harry Potter movie without Voldemort. Right. Like, Great he point. really, Great point. you know what I yeah. mean? Like, is there a movie that has, like, a Voldemort in it? Miss Minchin is the closest. Miss Minchin is the closest. But that's the closest one. But yeah. then. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is the closest. But yeah, and I think even I, in that one, it feels like she's just doing she's just doing the bidding out of her control. Yeah, yeah. she's just doing yeah. the bidding of like society in that one. But I think that right. one is. I do think of her as a villain, and I and I do think, and she gets her comeuppance. Like, yeah, uh, it, the Dementors are like kind of the villains of the Harry Potter movie, and that's more like you know, again, just like the police. You know, exactly. Yeah, right, it's a totally exactly. different that's structural. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a structural villain too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> faceless. You Should know? we rate these movies? Yeah. Literally faceless. Done? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good point. That's a really Let, good yeah. Let's call. rate them. Okay, I'll, I'll go, go first. first. Oh, you go okay, first. Travis, you, you go first. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> number one is still like it's just so personal to me, and I really feel like it stands outside of his filmography. Like I said, I really feel like he finds his voice in Itu Mama Tambien, but you can already tell he is like a master filmmaker with a little princess. And I just think it's his most like beautiful movie. It's like kind of his most fantastical movie. It's the most, um, it's the one movie like with a happy ending and, and like everything kind of works out. And it's, um, I think it's just totally circumstantial that he ended up making that film. And I'm like, so grateful that it exists. Like of of all of these, um, one of my favorite movies of all time and still my number one, Alfonso Cuaron movie. Number two, I'm going to do a tie. My newly, uh, you know, christened uh, history trilogy. It's the whole thing. Like, Itumama Tambien, yeah. Roma, mm-hmm. and Children of Men, just, like, yeah. completely masterful, really unique, and I think they kind of exemplify uh, Alfonso Cuaron's style and, like, um, thematic concerns, like, perfectly. Um, number th- three, I guess, uh, is Gravi- <laughs> Gravity. Uh, I still think the movie rules, but right there with it, uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And I'll probably like, you know, go back to that one more and maybe on a different day, if I was more in the mood when I watched it, uh, Harry Potter could be above gravity. Like, but I don't know. Gravity was just so good to me when I watched it recently. Um, and then way below those solo con to pareja, just like a fun, interesting romp. And, uh, not for me, whatever. (laughs) Number six, great expectations. Uh, that's all. That's it. Nice. Yeah, I'm pretty much on there, too. The only exception being uh, my number one is Roma. I mean, this one actually said... Yes. Yeah. And and it's actually not even particularly close. And and again, this isn't to disparage any of his other amazing movies. But for me, this just occupies this entire separate echelon that's like the pinnacle of filmmaking to me. It's amazing. Uh, I'm so glad we we got to end on this note because it's the best. It's Excellent. Yes. And then, of course, Itumama Tambien, right behind that, um, for many of the similar reasons, but you can really see him gaining his voice. I'm really glad he got to sort of, sort of flex his individuality and his muscles as a filmmaker with this one, especially following up the, the other two before it. Uh, number three, Children of Men. Uh, number four, Little Princess. Still love Little Princess. Uh, right in the middle is kind of gravity. Uh, it's, it moves up and down. Depends on the, how I'm feeling that day. Uh, I still think about it a lot. Harry Potter 3, Just Below Gravity, Solo con tu pareja, 
Uh, and then the last would be Great Expectations, yeah. the one he probably never should have made. I think he would say he never should have made that. Yeah, movie. yeah, he, I think he has many times. But it's like interesting. Uh, you know, I wonder if he would have um, found his I'm voice sure was, so you know yeah. as quickly with you know each like each moment Tambien is such like a, it, it a feels huge like step such a reaction. Up. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, for me, so these top four movies, I think that we all have are just so diverse enough that they, I don't know, they're all tens to me. So like, yes, exactly. what, so what's the point? You know exactly. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. from my personal experience, like the fact that number four is number four is unfair to number four. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So, uh, just from my own personal experience as this watch through, because you know, a lot of these were the first, I mean, were the second time I'd seen them and they hit me in such an in, intense way. Yeah. E2 yep. Mama Tambien being the prime example of that. Which oh, yeah. was, that's, it's, it's bordering my top 10 movies of all time. Yes. Like we had, you know, it's really <laughs> fucking moved up in my, in my fucking love of movies. Like it's right yeah. there with some of my favorite movies of all time. Nice. Children of Men, right underneath that. Or, you know, these are all parallel. Children of Men, right there. Just fucking bringing it. <laughs> like, filmmaking <laughs> power. Then, uh, I've got at number three, A Little Princess. Because with this watch, I was trying to make my list last night, and I was thinking to myself, like, you know, it's just such a fucking good... It is such a singular movie. Like, it does... It's it deserves to be high on this list. Like it's so good as a kid's movie, you know, but also just as a movie, uh, then Roma. But like I said, all four of those fucking masterpieces in a weird way. Sorry, Chris, to use that word. (laughs) 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 Then comes Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban. A lot of fun. I love those movies. Uh, or at least that one gravity, Solico to Lowered expectations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm so glad. I, I feel like both you guys took away at least, like, a movie in this where you, like, had to, you, you know, like, yeah. that it touched you deeply. And, like, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. so glad because I feel like even though we don't have the same favorites, any any of us, which is, I think, is really cool, yeah. um, we we all kind of recognize like that these movies like are so incredible and they've given us like so much to think about and they've given us these incredible like aesthetic experiences. And, uh, I loved watching these. I'm so glad you guys enjoyed them. And, uh, this was a really fun uh, little series. I hope so let's call it a day. Yeah. Oh, they will. They will. (laughs) Yeah. I I hope we can like, I hope we at least inspire like, you know, our friends who maybe listen to this to like rewatch some of these films, uh, or if they haven't seen them, just watch them for the first time because, um, I, I don't think he gets enough credit and I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I yeah, hope we've done, been done injustice. inspiring me to spread the gospel of Quarrel exactly. too. Like that's, right. that's a special thing, you know, as much as like the Coen brothers were my pick and I love them deeply. Like I didn't, there's been every movie that I watched this, like I also texted another one of my friends to be like, have you seen this movie? You know what I mean? Like yeah. you guys have to see this. Like, so anyway, uh, yeah. Good talk, guys. Let's call it a day. And Good I'm really talk. excited yeah. to, you know, reconvene in 2023 for our next series. Uh, Chris, <laughs> that'll you get to choose the director. Looking forward to it. We'll keep you all posted. Right yeah. on, guys. Right. Well, thank you for listening. Guys, so much fun. Love you guys. Let's do it again Good soon. Good talk. Thanks, Thanks film Bye. friends. See ya. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Autour Detour. We'll see you again. again.